need some motivation on your Chinese business endeavor, may be curious about what the Chinese business environment is all about, or want to laugh out loud listening to war stories on the ground in China, then this is your show, China Business Cast. So welcome back to the China Business Cast, everyone. Today we're going to have a, a, a joint um, conversation where Simon, we have Simon, uh, a new guest host, is going to be uh, coming on the show today with our guest as well. Um, so I'm really excited to, to have Simon on. Um, he reached out to me based on my request uh, a few episodes ago for also people who wanted to be hosting uh, on the China Business Cast. And it, it's super awesome to have uh, Simon here who, who volunteered to be a guest host and share his experience with me. Thanks, uh, thanks for being here and organizing this, Simon. You're very welcome, Jans. I'm happy to be here. Yeah, well, awesome. And you're, you're based in Shanghai. Tell us, a, tell us a little bit about your life and how did you end up there? So for me, I'm based in Shanghai indeed. Uh, for me, the first time coming to China was 2007, where I did my thesis on how to influence um, the personal workers, like employees, based on their national culture. So I looked into the cultural perspective from China on how to reward them. I got so excited about the city Shanghai. I felt like this is such an international place to be at. It's very similar to New York in my feeling. So I went back after my thesis, graduated, worked for an international company. Hopefully they would send me to China. Um, that didn't happen. So then I looked uh, for a job here in 2011, found a job, got started. The plan was to be here for three years and now I'm uh, eight years in. So. Still, uh, still very happy to be here. It's a great place uh, to work. And now I'm uh, married with a Chinese. I have basically my uh, mother-in-law and her sister living with me. And I have two kids. Um, so we are, yeah, quite, quite established in the Chinese communities now. And I'm running an, uh, a company here focused on cross-border trade. So um, Awesome. Yeah, I, I hear, I see a lot of like similarities, like a lot of things you, you hear this a lot, right? Yeah, I was planning to come here for a year or two or three and well, it's a decade later and, and we're still here. Um, a, a lot of stories like that. Um, yeah, and, and same with me, a lot of similarities also have uh, married and a, and a kid here, a two-year-old daughter. Um, I I'm, don't have a mother-in-law uh, living with me, but uh, um Sometimes it could be convenient, but also see some downsides of maybe. <laughs> yeah, sometimes it's a ticking time bomb. Sometimes it's not very convenient. So uh, it depends on the day when you ask. Basically. <laughs> let's uh, let's focus on the guest for today. Um, you organized a very cool, interesting guest. Um, tell us a little bit about her. Can you do a quick intro about her name is Lena? Um, give us a quick intro. Yeah, for sure. So I met uh, Lina around five years ago in Shanghai, and she is, uh, I found her always is a very uh, fascinating person uh, to be with, to talk to, has uh, great insights as well on how to run a company in China, particularly on how to deal with the Chinese culture, is heavily invested her time on the Chinese language, which I really admire for people to be so um, deep into it, just to be able to actually see the value and also be able to be involved cross-cultural. And for me personally, I like being a, a working in a cross-cultural environment and she is a true replication of that. So she's running a company herself and I thought if I'm going to be a guest host, then I should definitely get her on my list to, to interview. 
and share our story to the rest of the, the world or the, at least the listeners and uh, create a platform for herself and also to be able to learn from her. Because uh, every time I meet with her, we always plan for a short coffee. It ends up a few hours conversation. <laughs> and uh, I come back always super energized and, and ready to go and take up a lot of climb mountains, basically, and overcome things that we're struggling every day. So um, I think she's an inspiring person, and I, and I would like to share that with uh, the people listening. So maybe you, Lina, uh, we call you Lina B. <laughs> maybe you can introduce yourself a little bit for what, what, what gets you here into uh, Shanghai and and uh, the, your relationship to China itself? Uh, good morning, boys. Thank you very much for having me. And thank you, Simon, for picking me as uh, the first guest of honor for yourself. Um, I am probably one of those people Jans just mentioned, a person <laughs> who just came here and stayed for a decade. I'm exactly that. I've been here for 10 years now. I came originally for half a year um, after I was about to complete my Chinese studies back in Lithuania. In 2006, I started studying Chinese language. And as Simon says, uh, the first month was just spent on pronunciation. So it was a painful process, but well <laughs> worth it in the long run yeah. because nobody can have that uh, luxury later in the career to just take the time off and really drill the basics. Yeah. So I think it serves me well on the everyday life. But um, in 2009, I realized I will never be able to speak fluently Chinese. So I self-funded and I came to China and I graduated my bachelor's while being in China already, defending my thesis on Confucianism through Skype. So that was the story of how I came to be here. Um, in 2010, um, because of Shanghai Expo, I became a soft after interpreter and translator when working for the Lithuanian government in, in the National Pavilion. And uh, already then I started being very passionate about bridging the cultures. I realized very quickly that it's not really the language that is the vital barrier, but the culture. And uh, then I got myself into the prestigious uh, elite school in Shanghai, Fudan University. And I did the international relations for four years, writing my thesis on Lithuanian China economic diplomacy in Chinese, which was supervised um, by previously Chinese ambassador to European Union, Professor Han Chongqi. And so at that time, even though, let's say, the type of education is very different than what I had in the very traditional education in uh, Lithuania, because my university has 500 years of history, and here in China, they just don't exist in that way. But I got to understand how Chinese politicians think, how they act, how they behave. And so in 2015, I set up a company. Um, and in 2014, there was a new tax, which just got, uh, you know, through. And... Um, so the new law was that you can, as a foreigner, register a company with no upfront uh, registered capital. I was very young, of course, at the time I didn't have 100,000 US to just burn, you mm. know. But um, when it changed, I was able to already register a company and that's how it started. Um, and it's been five years now. Yeah. That law still exists? For people that want yes. to set up a company? Yes, yes, yeah? yes. So Firstly. it was a breaking change in 2014, which opened up the market for all the 
foreign enterprises. For whole China or Shanghai only? Um, now, it depends on the region and really depends on the industry because there are some restricted industries that you as a foreigner still cannot have uh, 100% ownership in. Yeah. But then in a bigger picture, it exists throughout the China. I think Tesla China. broke this uh, this trend, right? Recently, I, where not, they are I'm 100% sure, strong, no. I think. Uh, because the biggest challenge that I had was one client of mine wanted to register an e-commerce uh, system within China. And at that time, it was the first... Uh, Shanghai Free Trade Zone that was testing the pilot law yeah. where you can register uh, um, fully control your e-commerce as a 100% uh, foreign shareholder. Yeah. So that was something new. But then, yeah, it seems like you just need to have your eyes open and talk to somebody local who will be able to guide you where where are those opportunities because definitely China is loosening up. Yeah. Yeah, so... So, you, because your background is, you're, you're from Lithuania, yeah. and you studied Mandarin there. Yes. And then you came uh, here to basically excel on that. So, for you then, to, to go from a, like a, a, uh, well, a student or go, going from the language side into entrepreneurship, where you launched your own company, how is that, how, how, see, how do you see that when, as, a, as a journey itself? Is it from language to entrepreneurship. I know you're in your earlier days, you also been an entrepreneur as a, as a teenager, but it's kind of like uh, a fallback plan for you to always uh, be uh, entrepreneuring or what you call uh, a businesswoman or whatever name you want to give it. <laughs> well, for me, it's very difficult to put a label. I'm not sure how about you, because uh, my background is in Chinese studies, which is anthropology and culture and history. Mm. And then the second degree is diplomacy. But then now I'm a business consultant. But we base our business consulting on two pillars. One is strategic communications and the other is strategic partnerships. And for that reason, I believe that I can still bring the best that I have. It's just that the mindset is, or the framework is the business framework. Mm -hmm. And so my father is a businessman. So I've seen how he's done business since I was born, you know, and he's quite successful. And then the second thing, as you said, when I was 13, um, imagine... Lithuania was not a very fun place to be at because it was a new country. Mm -hmm. uh, suddenly, you know, when the Soviet Union broke, uh, there is a country where there are no laws. Nothing is really set in stone. So there are all when was those. This? And I was 13, and well, Lithuania became independent in 1990. Okay. And I was 13 when it counts 2001, 2002. So in 2004, we got into European Union. So then since 13, I was trying to get into all these opportunities because suddenly they were already available. So everything my, that my parents dreamed of, I kind of could live through already. So And because we were so busy making sense of the world, which suddenly changed. Like we had different currencies sometimes every month. You know, we didn't know what will be the... Uh, you know, exchange rate or what you can buy with the same paper tomorrow. Yeah. So it was a very big flux within the society. So how it uh, affected me is that I turned to youth organizations and I was the leader of three youth organizations. At that time, there was a point where I had 30 kids, you know, my age, um, working together with me. And uh, the first project I sold was for Lithuanian government when I was 15. It was uh, valued at $40,000 or so. And it was uh, summer school, like kind of uh, summer camp programs for the underprivileged, like socially, let's say, you know, yeah, socially 
and they, they don't have the support that they require mm-hmm. or something like that. So these kind of kids. And um, then I realized that no matter who you are, no matter you know how old you are, if you have a great idea and you know how to package it, so I needed adults, of course, who would be signing off and stuff like that. Yeah. If you know how to play the system, you will be able to get that done, you know. But it sounds like Lithuania had so much opportunity, you still decided to go to China. Well, I think uh, I uh, I kind of tackled all my challenges pretty well, and I wanted the next big challenge. And both of my parents are mathematicians, so they're really rational thinking individuals, you know, with some emotional appeal, of course. But... um, for me, I realized that I don't want to go in their footsteps, but uh, I wanted something just as challenging as uh, high-level mathematics, uh, but in a different field. So I chose Chinese, you know. Mm. <laughs> well, that's definitely, yeah. <laughs> so I suppose, yes, Lithuania had a lot of opportunities, but since I was young, I would always see people's faces like what I have here with you or with Jons today, like you appreciate all these different ideas mm. and you will be fascinated and you would feel it is inspiring. But then back in Lithuania at that time, it was overwhelming. It was something that is out of place because in Soviet Union, everything was a box. You had to learn how to live within the box. Yeah. And then I just, I, I, I think I just was born a different breed. So it was very mm. difficult for people to deal with me. So, yeah, so so in China it was very different because you can make a life that yeah. you like and then you attract certain types of people and the brilliant minds that are around is just impressive and fantastic. Mm. Every day I'm getting to talk to people who I never thought I would meet in my life. Right. Like what's the, the environment in China creates a lot of opportunities, obviously. So just so last week I was invited to give a lecture in Harvard. Oh, nice. You know, and then the week before I was talking to somebody at IDEO. You know, mm-hmm. And then, like, people who are making these incredible things, they're suddenly my friends, and I can, you know, hang out with them, ask them for advice. Yeah. Um, next week, we're, you know, pitching uh, to set up a co-working facility in Hanan. So this is something I also never thought that I could be doing. But then yeah. imagine bringing a structural change to business communities, um, imagine Honan is number five uh, in terms of GDP in China, yeah. but all the industries that they work at is very traditional. So then what we can do as Lithuania or what we can do as, you know, Western uh, taught people who understand the process mindset yeah. or maybe capability mapping, um, we are able to bring this and share with them. And there are people who are interested in doing that. So that's amazing, you know, but, of course, you need a lot of cross-cultural. Yeah, for sure. Um, you know, and, and that cross-cultural part. Yeah, I mean, you, you've been an in, uh, interpreter for quite some time. You mm-hmm. also uh, are developing projects. You're a consultant. As an in, as an interpreter, it's like I can imagine that you be sitting on table, especially when it comes to government situations, mm-hmm. which you've been involved to as well. Mm-hmm. When it comes to uh, translating or interpreting, how, how do, you, do you handle the situation when the person on the other side? or on your side, has mm-hmm. not the right understanding of what's being said or what the message is that you want to get across. Mm-hmm. Um, just like what you noticed I'm doing now when talking to you, I'm taking notes. Mm-hmm. So if it is a governmental meeting, I will always be taking notes and ensure that it's 100% accurate because sometimes the diplomats, they don't want to be nice. They have to come off hard. Mm-hmm. And I've been interpreting for 
like uh, some serious Lithuanian diplomatic missions, the Minister of Culture, Central Bank, you know, and even the president during the expo. So um, as a result, it, it's just discipline, really. You really need to feel. And usually I spend quite a little bit of time before going in for interpretation to understand the goals, the objectives, the tone of voice that the person will be using. Yeah. So really, it's their choice if they want to offend the other party. Sometimes it's necessary. But then if it is a business situation, and this is something that I'm more involved in at the moment, you need to be a negotiator. It's not an interpreter that you need. And then people who go into negotiations with their friends, child who suddenly learned to speak Chinese, you know, or, um, you know, people do that a lot, or they find mm. a student who will work with them for free. Mm. So can you imagine this person has no clue how to handle or how to feel all the subtle nuances that are in context. So, yeah, um, I suppose it's just a drill. You really need to be very um, conscious and have good attention to details. Yeah. Lena, in, in to, to go further on, on on that topic, how do you, if you're if you're working on these negotiations or if you're just doing business or working with your own customers, how how do you deal with like when there's really cultural differences? If just the way people are thinking are are opposites from each other, how how do you deal with with those differences and and what kind of solutions do you have for those kind of situations? I usually it's a very interesting question. Thank you for that. Um, I usually just um, make it very simple. So, for example, yesterday I was talking to Chinese government about setting up a license for a particular new um, um, what do you call it specialty for a particular new specialty. So it is medical simulation instructor. So the person then said, you know, what is this license? Why do you even need it? Then I was sitting there and thinking carefully, and I said, well, imagine you're driving a car. Would you be comfortable if everybody in China would be driving a car without a license? So it's the same idea. So how come in medical simulation education, currently people are instructors, but we don't know who instructed them to be instructors. And what are they teaching the students who are medical students? So when it is something that is highly complex, I just try to find an analog or a metaphor that would make it so understandable um, that both parties would suddenly be like, oh, I get it. You know? But it takes a very agile and quick thinking on your feet. Um, we had a situation with the IKEA. So uh, a client of mine was... Uh, uh, thinking of uh, purchasing a factory in China. And the factory was actually the best factory you can find. Um, they were really transparent with many things. But um, the issue is that in China, the way we handle business here and the way IKEA handles business in you know Sweden is two different ways. And what is seen as very compliant and normal here doesn't necessarily feel normal and compliant in Sweden. So then really the only thing I can do is to assess the situation, present them with the facts and, you know, the risks and uh, try to mitigate the tensions. So the, the positives with me is like there are 10 males with suits in the room and then because everybody comes from different backgrounds. So imagine Ernst, Ernst & Young, uh, 
you know, some legal company, then there is the owner of the factory, then there is maybe people who are, uh, you know, experts on fire compliance, environmental compliance, and then there are the clients also, right? So first I need to really know whose uh, interests uh, me as an interpreter or me as an um, mediator, whose interests I need to protect. Usually the interest for me is not the client's interest, it's the project's interest. Because usually the client has the worst idea for the project. Yeah. I think that's very true often. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. It's politically well said. <laughs> So I think that is something that I really need to keep in mind. And if we have very clear goals and objectives, and unless it is clear, I don't even touch anything, you know. For example, yesterday I was talking to a person who wanted to be a market researcher for me. And then he told me a story that they have a big European brand who are currently testing the website of e-commerce in China. And I said, did you tell that people never use websites for e-commerce in China? He's like, no, but the client wanted me to do, you know, user experience testing. And I said, are you crazy? Like the client is asking you something that will never work in China. And then I said, did you even think about last mile delivery? I think the biggest opportunities today in China are within that context. And I gave him a story that recently we are working with a Mexican uh, national pavilion on WeChat and the first 200 people they will get mariachas developing nice. <laughs> delivering <laughs> delivering their, their their first shipments and it was the first time this market researcher heard about last mile delivery I didn't even talk about all the other order fulfillment or pick and pack so basically sometimes the client because they're so used to certain ways of doing things in, in the West they will assume things that will not help their project. So as a result and as a conclusion, then to answer this question is I always take that the project is my benchmark. This is what I need to solve. It's not the community. It's not all the different stakeholders. But we want to reach the goals. And yeah, sometimes it's a tricky situation. <laughs> that shows the value because I know that um, some, I remember someone who kind of hired a person for the day for, to translate the meetings they showed up at the train station in a super short oh. pants. And the guy said, okay, you can go home again. I'm not going to bring you. Because first of all, you give the wrong image of my company. Mm -hmm. And then I will have to deal with the situation myself. But the, 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 the preparation, the, the, the background, and getting an understanding of the project itself that, uh, is more important, like you say, than actually translating the words. So for us, the way we because one part of our services is matchmaking. We <clears throat> prepare for the meetings, we conduct the meetings, we help the client in the meeting. So number one, dress code is very clear. The clients are instructed to have certain dress codes so that they will appeal to the person's um, predetermined stereotypes. And that is very important to not confuse people about things that you can eliminate because there will be a lot of confusion about the practical elements. So you need to eliminate anything that you can, number one. Number two, gifts. When you come to China, and some of my friends, they even have Excel sheets where they have recorded all the gifts that they have given to certain people because that's such an important part. So usually I will do it free of charge, but it takes forever, you know, to just guide the clients through what kind of gifts are memorable enough, are valuable enough, 
um, in order to make a positive impression, because usually we have a very narrow period of time to leave a good, a good impression. Um, it's been quite fun, I have to say. Yeah. <laughs> There's one uh, guy who um, I think they they because of his star sign or Chinese star sign, they oh. bought uh, a golden or like Swarovski Swarovski kind of jewelry as a gift. Mm-hmm. And the guy, he's a billionaire, basically, a Chinese billionaire. He looked at it and just put it next to all the other ones, which was not worth the value of the relationship. So really, the, um, it's not, you're, you're not buying the relationship because it's a trade, in a sense. Um, but uh, it is a signal for, to, to give to the other side, to the other party, to be able to say, I respect you. And it's uh, about company culture. This is what the Chinese want to understand, and this is what they want to buy when they work with foreigners. And they want to buy the logic, the structure. They want to buy something that is very difficult in China because everything is a maybe. They know that foreigners, yes, means a yes, you know? Um, so when you come with this kind of uh, corporate culture, when you care for the other, when you really show that you have thought about it, you know, then they will be very appreciative. I don't see any other way to, you know, make a quick, positive impression. There's a very cool podcast also for the China Business Podcast about this cultural difference between China, US and Japan. And they also mentioned the absolute truth and the relative truth. Because I think it's a few episodes ago where, where the, state, the name I think is about the trade war. And they go into the relative truth where the beginning, um, signing a contract is the beginning. Uh, and it's not the end where the Western mindset is absolute truth. We fix it, it's done, we're ready to go, go. And then things change, the environment changes, and then also the judgment of a Chinese uh, businessman or person will change as well. So it's, it's, uh, uh, I'm not sure if we talked about it with you before already because we share these kind of uh, conversations, but this was the most painful process for me in China to mm-hmm. go beyond the absolute truth. Because yeah. both my parents were mathematicians, so oh, yeah. it's either right or wrong. Like, there is no middle. And then in 2012, I encountered a Buddhist uh, teacher who said that it's a matter of perspective. There can be multiple, you know, thousands of truths, all equally as true at a certain period of time. So that was, I think, uh, it took me about half a year to crack that riddle. Wow. Yeah. But I think uh, that's what I'm sharing through my work with the clients at the moment as well. It took me eight years after listening to the podcast of Jans to, to figure out what is the, well, how to crack that code. So. Yeah, and it was a very, for me as well, to like the, the interview I did with Richard Conrad um, about this topic. It, it was, was eye-opening for me as well. And, and in the end, it's actually quite logic. If you've been here long enough, you've seen like everything is relative here. Like one day... The, the yes is, isn't yes, but it's, it's more an intention and it still can fluctuate from left to right and then and maybe back again, uh, depending on context and situations and then how things develop. But I found it a very interesting podcast to record as well, indeed. So regarding your, um, so the interpretation is clear, but you also help companies to do market entry. So you mentioned uh, earlier to me that you have like a three-stage entry model that you use? Is it something you can share a little bit more just to get other people also an understanding of what it takes? I mean, getting an interpretation, a negotiation, and then getting started. That's a whole different ballgame. So how do you, uh, how would you describe your, your entry model or how, how can other people relate to that? So because I started uh, from a blog, 
I had a blog that had uh, 200,000 readers in Lithuania in uh, 2009 and 2010 because of uh, there was complete vacuum about China. So suddenly what I was sharing became very interesting and very popular. And then people started contacting me about their needs and their problems. And it was really funny. Like one of them would say, I would like to buy shoes. I say, great. Um, you know, how many? And he says, one container. I say, what kind of shoes? He says, black. <laughs> so this is how I started. So basically, I quickly realized that I need to build a way to ask the right questions. I needed to find a very clear screening, how I can see whether that client will be committed, whether that person will have the willpower to actually do what it takes in China, the discipline required and the resources required. Here I'm not talking about money. Here I'm talking about people resources. You need time, you need the effort, you need, you know, just the vision and good intention. Otherwise, uh, you won't crack China, you know that. So um, the way I set up everything was uh, because from Lithuania, most of the companies are small, medium enterprises, so they don't understand what consulting means. They've never had a consultant. So probably in Netherlands, it's a bit different. Maybe it's much more established, certainly in Germany or France or United States or UK. People are used to hiring a consultant to set up a business model and then set up a team and then you will just launch the operations. Now in Lithuania, that was not the case. They would hire somebody in-house to do all that. So I needed to develop uh, very clear deliverables that every step of the way, so even 2,000 euros are accounted for. People could feel like there is a result and there is a shift in their you know, process entering China. So some signature services that we delivered uh, included Chinese naming. So imagine your company is Minds International. So how do you think the Chinese will pronounce it? You like, see, we're using a Chinese name when we right. talk to Chinese. Yeah. But when if it is Minds International that's uh, talking to me for the first time, then I ask them this question. I'm saying, so imagine... If it is not uh, you who's pronouncing it and explaining it, then it would be the Chinese person creating his own association. And uh, since you asked me to tell you a bit more about these Chinese naming tricks, um, for example, Ralph Lauren has been known in China as an old man with a big stick. You know, so the Chinese, because the brand did not direct their attention, they did not create their own nickname, they did not invest in building the whole localized brand identity. The local Chinese, they created it for themselves. And then because it was so funny, everybody just started using it and it took off. So the first thing that we want to do is to control that situation so that nobody will start laughing or building things that don't serve the company's interests and objectives for the project, right? That's my first interest. Then number two is usually the company profile. So you know how um, when you meet somebody in China, the first thing you will do is you exchange WeChat contacts. And um, I was just talking to somebody who's the second person in uh, BCG, Boston Consulting Group, and he said that 90% of his work happens on WeChat. So if for that person, it happens on WeChat. Well, probably that means anyone in China just do the work on WeChat. So usually foreigners, they have no clue how to properly, you know, behave on WeChat because there are all these little things, emojis. So once in my office, I had PWC and C-level people from 
you know, globally. And I was teaching them to use emojis and to make WeChat groups and shake their iPhones in order to make friends, you know. Um, so that skill is very important. So again, if it is a new company coming to China, this will be the make it or break it moment. You add somebody's WeChat and if you're able to send them instantly a company presentation that is China friendly, and we spend usually about a month developing that because you need much deeper storytelling. You need the much more emotional appeal, a vision. You need to show your products differently. They have to be in context. You know how if uh, you sell fish, then probably it's a family eating fish. And it's not just a fish uh, picture. So yeah, so that's something else that we did develop that is very helpful for the companies. As for the three-stage model, we start with the mapping, we call it. We just analyze the full landscape of uh, China within that industry. We're not interested in uh, you know, objective analysis numbers, but we're interested in the emotional appeal that will serve the company's needs for the marketing purposes. Mm-hmm. So we will be analyzing the latest laws and regulations. We will be analyzing the business models and building case studies. Uh, we will be analyzing uh, the competitors, direct and indirect. We will be checking the consumer uh, market. We will be identifying who would be the ideal consumer short-term, long-term. And the fifth uh, question that we ask is uh, the internet buzz. So what has been going on on social media recently that is discussing that topic? As a result, we will always end up in any of these uh, five pillars. We will find something uniquely amazing that will serve the company's needs today. So then when we're completed with that, we will be building company profile. And then immediately we can go and talk and test all these ideas with real people through roadshow in matchmaking. And then number three, soft landing. So if they need organizational support, if they need, we have resources, we can register a company, we can set up a meeting with a lawyer, we can help them hire a sales representative, like a, you know, like on a retainer basis, maybe the brand manager if they need. So basically my purpose is to take three or four months to educate the C-level people on the client's end what it will take in China. That's why we build materials that are like 100 pages. Mm -hmm. And as soon as the people really read through it, they will be like, oh my God, finally I get it. And then what they read, we will simulate that through the meetings. So they will get to experience that which they read about. So you go like a real deep dive into a little. So actually, not many people want to do that. So our clients are very, we're very picky with the clients, and also the clients are very picky. When finally we find each other, it's usually very interesting. They're like, "Oh my god, you do that!" And I'm, "Oh my god, you're you're capable," you know. But paying for consultancy is not just in the Western culture. I think for SMEs, when it costs money, it's already a consideration not to do it. No. But um, for Chinese, particularly, if we help Chinese to enter Europe, Chinese don't want to pay for service normally. That's yeah. just part of the package deal. Um, so it's very tricky also to get Chinese into a diff- another country because they're, they're going global and there's enough money to spend. Um, it's, it's the same idea as long as you give them something very graspable. So that's why in any stage of my process, even though we, I know very clearly because the amount of questions we ask, it's definitely consulting business and it's management consulting, you know. But um, 
We don't say that necessarily to the client. We act as an agency and we have very clear product package. So they will know what they're getting at the end. Because normally for a consultant, you pay for one hour, you get one hour. That's all, right? But then uh, for small, medium enterprises and for Chinese, it doesn't work that way. But I think you can totally eliminate that uh, discomfort by really managing the needs and expectations. And then when the person starts internalizing all that that you've been feeding him and starts seeing the results of how different he can communicate and what different uh, reactions he gets from the Chinese counterparts, then they will become, you know, believers. Up until that point, because of my reputation and because of my network, usually it's somebody's recommendation, it will be completely blind faith. And I've been very lucky that people are able to kind of invest three or four months or six months in really believing that, yes, at the end of this, you know, experiment, we will have something. Yeah. Because so. you have to localize, basically. Yeah. And, that's the, and that takes time to be able to find the right, find the, the right angle. It's <clears throat> not really the angle. I'm building the stamina because you need mental stamina to deal with all the things that will happen. So not many people can you know, feel comfortable in a lot of unknowns. And China is full of unknowns. There are laws that are changing every day. The only thing that you can rely on is other people. And that's why we built everything around the right people who you feel comfortable in talking to, who you feel comfortable in working with, who have your back. I also see that in, in, in my business or in my line of work, it's, some of the customers we work with and they, they, they trust us to do what we do. Um, and others are like more skeptical or they want to be more in control and they, they don't really understand like the Chinese market well enough to, 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 they don't have the Chinese attitude to, to survive here or to thrive here. Right. That's basically what you're, what you're describing. Um, because things change so fast and, and market conditions, rules and regulations. And if, if you don't have the China mindset, which is one of the part that what, what you're doing, what you're educating and going through with your with your clients, and the same on my side. I, I I think very quickly I can see which clients are gonna have a chance of success and which are gonna simmer out after a while because they they just they want to stick to their traditional ways, right? To their to to the ways that they're used and and not really go deep in into into China. I know that that's my view. What I've seen with with quite like with my client base? Well, you know, Simon asked me the other day, he said, uh, you know, is it easy to do consulting? Well, there are two aspects in consulting. One is uh, people only come to you with problems and two, like you cannot have your own problems when you're talking to a person. So at the end of the day, I end up torturing people, you know, because I'm asking them something that nobody has ever asked them before. And they need to start thinking in that direction, which they're not comfortable in thinking going in that direction. For example, a lady who has 40 million euros turnover, you know, it's not a small medium enterprise anymore, even in Europe. Um, She wanted to come to China with a tourism project. And then I started asking her questions about the legacy because it was her mom who founded the company and it was you know a very interesting story how the company came to be it's now 25 years and over and it's a leader in the region and all that however she's never told the story she never even thought about it but you know how important it will be in China to understand the context and to understand whether this person can be trusted with 
you know, Chinese money, whether this person can be trusted with actually following through on what they, you know, uh, told you that they would be doing. So, yeah. And it's really nice because with me, the clients, they become very, somehow they loosen up quite quickly and they will be telling me quite honestly, Lena, I don't feel comfortable. You know, it's really difficult to think about that. However, give me some time. I'll come back to you. Just, I need, you know, a few moments or a few days. I'll figure it out. I'll do it. But please, you know, they, they will be able to moderate and manage me themselves. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> so even uh, helping them to get clar- clarify their own uh, market position. Usually. Because it's not yeah. only for China. Because it's storytelling. Yes. Which is now the key when you want to sell something. Yes, yes. So usually they will be able to lift the marketing efforts back home as well, especially with the medical project that we're working on now. So people, they're all PhDs and people who have brilliant reputation and they're all professors. And one of them, you know, has completed a PhD in one year. Can you imagine like these kind of people I'm working with? And then I need to be the bad cop and tell them that, their communication is bad, you know, and they have all the degrees in the world. They are older than me by like a decade or more. But then here I am telling them that, you know, all that you've been doing, you need to rethink that. And that's painful to hear, right? But then uh, we spent quite a bit of time, maybe a month, uh, to declutter the whole pitch. And we made it a very simple story. And when the client was talking to one local government uh, and the hospital heads, he got interrupted and the people said, wow, this is brilliant. This is great. What you're doing is something that we've been needing for a long time. And he's never had that response ever. And also he's never had a meeting that is so professional ever before. And it was only possible because of that clarity and communication on what we're bringing to China, what are the goals, why we're even into this. What, what uh, Lena? Maybe what are some other main misunderstandings that new entrepreneurs have when when coming to China or starting up a business or dealing with things in China? I don't know. What do you think? Maybe I can si- tell you five things I've heard today. You know. So it's <laughs> <laughs> maybe Simon has some insights as well. Yeah. So when somebody comes to China first, they normally the the first thing you know, I need to give the business card with two hands, right? Yeah, but there's much, and how should I dress? So a lot of the interesting point, also what Lena just mentioned is, actually, um, nowadays, I don't really give much business cards away, only I give it away because my QR code of my WeChat is on my business card. So they can scan that and then get connected. (laughs) It's much more the the WeChat where the, the business is happening. So definitely one of the things is you need to get WeChat where most who come for the first time will install it the Within the first day, they arrive in China, um, and you know, and a lot of them also like, how do, how should I behave? And in my personal understanding, is just be yourself because the Chinese person will also expect that he's going to be facing a foreigner. He's not going to expect you to be a full Chinese with a full understanding of the culture, the language, the behavior. So I call it just being the stupid foreigner, which I which role I quite often use in my advantage as well, right? sometimes not even speaking in Chinese to them or doing it later in a meeting where, where, uh, where just to show that I'm serious about being here and, and doing business here. But not necessarily, you don't have to pretend to be a, a Chinese. You are still there um, as a foreigner sitting there. So you don't have to uh, fake anything. 
but you do have to keep an open mind because things that are going to be said or asked where you were like, huh? either you haven't thought about it or you disagree with it or um, uh, you are just uh, um, blown away by, the, by this kind of way of thinking. Uh, so having this open mind on what's being said and be able to clarify this later and asking further questions to get a better understanding. A lot of, I clarify a lot when I, I have a conversation like, so you mean this and this and this? And actually, quite often, is no, that's not what I mean. So yeah, I'm so happy I asked the question. Otherwise, I might have run into conclusions. Uh, and as a Western mindset, it's just it needs to be fixed. So you're going to already in your mind, you're like, okay, this, so this is what I mean. Okay, then we have to go that direction. We have to take these actions. But that's something that's not the, the right um, uh, time to, to go into that. It's first fact-finding, clarifying, and then go into... Uh, actions at a later stage. Yeah. You know, I, think that, uh-huh. I have an example that really serves me very well um, is uh, from e-commerce. So the girl that I talk to regularly and she's helping me quite a bit, she used to be the head of uh, e-commerce division in London for Deloitte. So I, in my service proposal, I included a price for translating that product description from English to Chinese. And it's like, maybe 150 euros, you know, per product description. And she went nuts. She's like, what will you charge? 150 euros is crazy. And then I showed her what a product description looks in China. <laughs> like there is a cat, there is a, you know, like there's a farmer, then there is a farm field, then there is the origin of the tomato, the reason why tomato is a tomato and not a different fruit, you know, and something like that. And then all kinds of uh, recipes with the products being used in real life, how it benefits the person. Whereas for her clients, if you sell ketchup, then the description will be 100 tomato, you know, 100% tomato. That's it. But then in China, it's just, I think that is the biggest misunderstanding. And then the way people create catalogs, the way people create the company presentation um, in the West, we're very low context culture. In China, it's high context culture. So you really need to put it all out there because they skim through it, but they want to have enough context so they can always feel comfortable that they will have somewhere to go back to. So that is usually one of the biggest challenges that I don't quite know how to quickly convert the people to um, comply with because it's such a heavy amount of work. Yeah, so we do quite a bit of, you know, building the brand guidelines and then um, all the key messaging points of how to answer this or that question if that comes up. So, yeah. I think this is an excellent point, like where where it's just very different from from Europe, from America, and and in China. Um, just like with your e-commerce example, uh, go to any Taobao or Tmall or Jingdong product page, and it's like pages and pages of uh, visuals and and text to describe and and tell a story about the product, right? So that's very different indeed. So I came into this business because. Um we started working with the government of Lithuania. They're my clients. And uh, we started building uh, identity for Lithuania as a country. Because if you say Lithuania in China, people will be like, what? So we did a very deep market research and identified four corner, yeah, cornerstones, let's say, for the communication strategy. 
and we identify things that the Chinese already think about our region or things that people would associate. And we want to detach from the beautiful, you know, blonde woman and uh, basketball player. But we want to go towards the healthcare sector and we want to go more towards, you know, like a quality conversation, not so shallow and stuff that sells very quickly. Um, so as a result of our communication and uh, working together, we were able to land a deal with Kaula. So in six months, our Minister of Economy signed a deal with the biggest cross-border e-commerce shopping platform in China. And they will be launching a national pavilion of Lithuania because through our uh, social media efforts, we were able to prove to Kaula's um, C-level people that we're interested to invest and capable of building stories about the product, about the country, about the company, which is very important. And so Kaula is, for the ones that don't know, is one of the top one e-commerce platforms in China, besides, of course, uh, Alibaba, uh, Timo and Jingdong, and, and uh, VIP and Xiaohongshu. And Kaula is definitely there in, in, this, in this list. So that's very interesting. I think your relationship with Lithuania itself, and I think not just Lithuania, is already amazing. I mean, you, you just shared as well, like uh, Jack Ma from Alibaba was recently in Lithuania, and people start contacting you, asking, hey, do you have anything to do with it? Are you in town? <laughs> Can we connect? So it's uh, uh, potentially he came just because of the Kala uh, deal that's happening, and he's trying to. Uh, we, we really don't know as of today. I have some speculations why he's there, and yes, we have been talking to Kala previously, and we have been talking to Alibaba previously as well. Uh, Kala was our choice because it uh, is much easier to launch cross-border sales, as you know. You have more experience than me doing that um, for small, medium enterprises. And Kaula is uh, probably the most respected quality brand platform for people that we want to target. So it's much more premium, it's much more clean, it's much more you know user-friendly. So for that reason, it was the priority choice of all Lithuania for at this stage of development. Yeah. And also for that, I think, the same as once you sign the deal, then it gets started. Yeah, yeah. Um, we saw many companies that enter China with a flagship store on any of the platforms, and like, okay, we're there. Okay, now let's start. And the one that actually that has the business development or that has get the brand or the or the product in the or the country in the platform has done their job. Then someone else takes over, and then a lot of time we get silence. Uh, because uh, it doesn't, the, the results being there doesn't mean that it's going to fly. Uh, it's a search engine. People need to type in Lithuania. So you need to create a lot of content inside but also outside where you actually are attracting people or inspiring them to type in Lithuania. And then they will find the, the store or the message that you would like to share deepest. So the, it's still the, the starting point for sure for Lithuania, but it's a... Uh, it's, uh, uh, it also might close some doors regarding Alibaba once you can commit to something else. It's just, uh, um, I don't see anything as being in conflict with anything else because there are many projects that are happening at the same time. And the biggest question that we got asked is how serious are we? So then because we had a very consistent stream of information that is good quality information, that is high level, and that is really appealing to the target audience that we're hitting. Um, we could prove to these people that Lithuania is serious. Otherwise, if you come here for the first time, nothing like that would be happening. 
So they're always testing, you know, your, let's say, uh, commitment. Are you really going to be able to pull it off? Yeah, yeah the commitment, the trust on both sides and simplify the message. Um, that's something that you, you mentioned before. I think I can relate to that a lot. That's, that's key to making it, making it work. So in the West, we have a way of uh, downgrading that kind of communication. They say it's B2C communication. But in China, I'm always hitting that. And even as you see in my experience, it's corporations, it's the government, it's small, medium enterprises, it's personal relationship. It works for all of that. So I don't see that uh, need of kind of uh, downgrading that way of communication. Actually, I think the future is there. Simplifying. Yeah. It's not downgrading. Yes, yes, right, yeah. Because people like to use fancy words and make it all very smart. And they're taught that this is the way by the professors, by, you know, um, people who use this language in order to not discuss the problems that are really at stake. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. I think we're about to to wrap up. Uh, Is there still a... So if anyone would like to to reach out to you or follow you, uh, or you have something that you, you said, this is something I really still want to share with, with the audience that is relevant to, to the topic, um, this is your time. <laughs> well, maybe I still didn't cover the name of my company, oh, so yeah. I can tell you how that came to be. Yeah, it's, um, as it's a called, service, right? Chinese naming is your yeah. service. So you should have an idea about your own company name, Malikao. Yeah, it's called Litao. So it can be interpreted in three ways. The most direct way is Litao Wan, which is Lithuania. So anybody who hears Litao, they can see that I'm sort of um, loyal to my origins. And a lot of people who are coming from Eastern Europe, they will not be so happy being from Eastern Europe, right? But then for some reason, I feel comfortable the way it is. And uh, it's like a tribute to where I come from. Um, The second name of the um, company, the second meaning of the company's name is uh, the Chinese characters that we chose. So the first character is Li which is the same character as in Dawn, which has in the Chinese character a person uh, basically planting grain in the field. That's what Dawn means. So, you know, you better get authority to get the work done and it's hard work, right? So that's the message we're sharing with that character. And the second character is uh, Tao, which is three points of water and longevity, like eternity. So eternally liquid, so basically, if you plant your seeds early, then you will eternally have uh, lucidity means money, right? So mm-hmm. you will always be profitable. Um, so that's something that a person who works uh, as an editor for one Chinese uh, magazine, he picked it up for me. And the third meaning is really, which I probably resonate with most, it's Lina uh, Tao. It's like the path that I took from Lithuania to China now. I'm sharing with people. So this name in itself is able to explain to potential clients or people who are thinking about China market, the level of complexity that a character can have and how much you need to really think of that to make sure that the name is category appropriate, that the name doesn't insult anybody, that it doesn't sound weird in any of the dialects. Yeah, and the first thing I did, I registered my trademark in all relevant categories in Europe and in China so that nobody takes it away. <laughs> yeah. 
So, yeah, so um, we have a very vibrant LinkedIn page. We post every day and it is usually some small tips and uh, some stories of what we're going through every day. So a lot of people find it appealing. We don't have a big audience, but the audience that we have, they're very friendly and they're always very encouraging. So that's nice. Um, and yeah, we have a website also. So you can just put it in yeah. the details. We will, we will put that in the details for sure. Okay. And then people can uh, link, uh, link to you or link to the, uh, the company and get some background information, follow you and get inspired along the way. Yeah, good. Well, thank you so much, uh, Lena, for, for your time and for, for everything we talked about. I think we covered a lot of interesting things. So yeah, thank you so much for, for being on the show and, and thanks um, to um, Simon for, for hosting and, and becoming a, a guest uh, podcast host. It's been great. Great. Thank you. Then uh, enjoy Chengdu. We will uh, have another coffee in uh, Shanghai. <laughs> Okay. Um, well, with that, I think we, we've got a wrap and uh, I hope to catch you soon in, when I'm in Shanghai or if you're ever coming to Chengdu, uh, ping me and, uh, and we'll, we'll hang out. So we should exchange WeChat, eh? Yes, we'll get it set up. <laughs> well, I'll send you a friend request uh, on your Lina Litao WeChat soon. Cool. Thank you very much. Okay. Thanks, Lina. Have a good one. You too. Bye. 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 Doing business in China is a complex world. You can quickly feel alone and lost in its maze. But don't worry, China Business Cast is here for you. Sign up for our newsletter and regular updates on our website at www.chinabusinesscast.com. Thanks for tuning in.